You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Now, we are not the first ones to follow Jesus. And we certainly are not the first ones to give sacrificially to advance his cause in the world. We are just a part of the historic movement that has brought more blessing to this world than most people realize. And that's the theme of this new message series that uh, I'm starting today. It's called The Difference. We're going to look at the impact of the Christian movement. Really, what we're going to be considering is the hidden blessing that Christ is behind the blessing of the modern world. Most people would agree that the advances of modernity have brought a lot of health and blessing to our world. What most people don't realize is that Jesus Christ is the one who is the blessing behind much of the blessing in the modern world. And we're going to look at that. I woke up this morning, and probably like you, I, I looked at my cell phone pretty early on. And uh, it said the date today was September 10, and the year was 2023. Why 2023? Well, because that's about how many years ago a baby boy was born to a, a poor carpenter in the Middle East. His name was Jesus. Now, of course, at the time, no one could have possibly imagined that this boy born to this poor family in this oppressed region of the world would end up splitting our calendar in two. No one could have dreamed that. Last month, my wife and I drove through the capital of, the, of our state. It's called Sacramento. Why is there a city called Sacramento? Well, it's because Jesus had a meal with his friends and it came to be called a sacrament, which means a holy thing. What Jesus did at that meal when he ate that bread and drank that wine and told us to do that in remembrance of him, that act is now practiced by a third of the world's population. After we drove through Sacramento, we drove past the city of San Francisco. Why is there a San Francisco. Why is it called San Francisco? Well, because there was a man called Francis, Francis of Assisi, who inspired so much love and charity that people named cities after him, like San Francisco. His, not, his life, Francis's life, was changed by a man named Jesus. Four years ago, I had seven eye surgeries in about a year and a half span. I can see you today, and I can read today because of those surgeries. Why are there surgeries in hospitals to have them in? Well, there are many contributing factors to that great blessing, but the big, biggest single factor is because Jesus would stop to heal the sick and tell parables about people like the Good Samaritan. Concern for the health of non-family members was absolutely unheard of before Jesus. But his followers got the message. And so by the fourth century, the church had established orphanages and care for the mentally ill and the very first hospitals. And then two centuries later, by the sixth century, the church had established institutions for the blind and for the elderly. And so today we go to hospitals called St. Joseph and Hogue Presbyterian and Good Samaritan, and we just don't even make the connection. It doesn't occur to us. My wife and I have five grandchildren. Four of them are girls. Now, for most of human history, 
the arrival of a baby girl was not the joyous occasion that it was for our family. In the ancient world, there were 1.4 million boys that survived for every 1 million girls. Not because the gender birth rate in the ancient world was different than it is now. No, it was because so many of the baby girls in the ancient world were left out and exposed to die because they were not valued like the baby boys. But then Jesus showed up, and he treated women differently than anyone before him had. Jesus stopped to help the widows. He showed mercy to the prostitutes who were trapped in that degrading trade. Women are featured prominently in the story of Jesus. From beginning to end, whether it's his birth that features Mary, or whether it's his resurrection that was first seen exclusively by women, not men. Those were statements. And those statements and those words, they shocked the ancient world, and it changed our world. I am grateful that my granddaughters will grow up in a culture that values and protects women. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, this man Jesus treated women in a shockingly different way. I have Jesus to thank for the blessing of my daughter and my four granddaughters and that they are not going to endure the treatment and oppression that they would endure if they were born in a different part of the world that wasn't as impacted by Christianity. Now, no matter what you think of Jesus, you cannot deny his impact on history. Jesus gave the world its most influential movement. Whether you measure it just by numbers of people impacted or whether you measure it by the ideas that have shaped and changed our world. I don't know of a historian that would deny the truth of that statement. The debate is not this. The debate in our world is whether the influence of Jesus and his church has been a good one or a bad one. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, we read this. After John was put in prison, this is John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. This was his intention, that it would be good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe, not the bad news, the good news. Who are the recipients exactly of this good news? Well, certainly... It was and continues to be good news for those who repent, which means turn back to God and believe in Jesus. It's good news for those of us who have decided to do that. We've seen our personal lives changed for the better because of Jesus. But even those who never did repent and never did believe in Jesus have been blessed by this good news because it changed our world. Jesus made the scope of this good news clear when he first announced that he was the good news that the Old Testament prophets had written about 700 years earlier. He stood up in his hometown synagogue, and this is what we read in Luke 4, 17 through 21. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, handed to Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And here's what he read. 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the answer. I, this is me, is what he's saying. So this is, let's be clear, this is what Jesus claimed would happen. He didn't claim that all the poverty in the world would be eliminated. He did claim that the poor of this world would now begin to find more help than they ever had before, all because of Jesus. He did claim that the cause of justice in this world would advance, all because of him. He did claim that recovery from health problems like blindness would trace their origins back to the one who healed miraculously. Really, you could summarize the claim this way, that all of humanity will look back to the year when Jesus arrived as the year when the great favor of God began to break out on this world. The question, is that true? Well, not if you listen to what most people think and what most people say. We've all heard about the evils of the Crusades, the evils of the Salem witch trials and the Inquisition. Most people are convinced that it was the church that suppressed science and art, that it was the church that used its power to make money off the poor, to justify slavery, to keep women oppressed and abuse children. And the list of evil goes on. That's why in our culture, the church is almost always the villain of any story of which it's a part. I know if any movie or any news story is about a church or about a pastor, we did something terrible. Something awful has happened. Jesus and his church are not seen as good news now, but as bad news. Why? Well, it's because our view of history is not shaped because all of us take the time to go back and read the original documents, the trusted historians, and do that kind of analysis ourselves. We don't have time for that. What we do is our view of history is shaped by the movies we watch and the shows that we see and the novels that we read. And most of them present a very skewed and dishonest picture of the impact of Jesus on this world. And it leaves those of us who follow Jesus feeling timid and embarrassed about that fact and maybe a little defensive. So our goal in this series is to present you with a great deal of historical facts. I encourage you to examine these for yourselves. Facts that will paint a very different picture of the positive impact of the Christian movement. Not so that if you're a Christian, you can walk away feeling better about yourself, but so that you and I can see how important it is for us, like those who went before us, to be a part of declaring and being the good news that this world so desperately needs. 
If you follow Jesus Christ, you are a part of the greatest force for good the world has ever known. That's my claim, and I'm going to be backing it up in this series. So what about the Crusades and all the evil that was done then and, and the witch trials and the Inquisition and all the sexual scandals that you hear from time to time about in the church? Well, in Matthew 7:15, Jesus warned us about that kind of thing. He warned us that there will people, there are going to be people who will come to you in sheep's clothing. You know, he is the great shepherd. Those of us who follow him, we are called sheep. Jesus says people are going to come to you in sheep's clothing. They're going to dress up and talk like and look like Christians, but inwardly, they've got fangs. They will be ferocious wolves. So there will always be, and there has been, people who claim to follow Jesus only to hide their fangs. But the record of history shows that there have been many, many, many more real sheep than wolves pretending to be sheep. And so we'll be looking at a lot of history. But the point of this series is not the past. We'll be looking at the past. The point is always the future. We can do nothing about the past. The future is where the opportunity for us lies. So as we consider the history of the impact of the Christian movement in this world, we'll be asking three application questions. Now, usually we make personal application after we have learned something. But I wanted to, to start the application thought process early. And that's because I don't want us to look at history and miss the fact that it was ordinary people who looked like us and who took following Jesus so seriously that they did something about it. And they brought many of the blessings in our world that we now think is just a matter of common decency, but it's because Christians following Jesus did something. And the question is, what, what now are we going to do? So I want to ask three questions this morning as we kick this series off. Application questions. These three questions informed what real followers of Jesus have done throughout the centuries to make a difference in this world, a difference for good. Question number one is this, do I think in line with the Bible? Do I think in line with the Bible? The common idea is that goodness just bubbles up out of the human heart over time, but you cannot honestly study history, and believe that. That is not the lesson of history. History is a record of the evil that bubbles up and tends to consume what is good. The evil that bubbles up out of the human heart. Much of what we consider now to be good and decent found its origin not in the minds of people who were good, but in the mind of the God who is good. These words from God that are recorded in the Bible were read by people who took them seriously, and as a result, they looked around them and they started doing what that verse said. They started doing the good that no one had ever thought of before them. These are not people looking around their culture, thinking like their culture, and doing what everyone else did. These are people reading through the Bible taking it seriously, thinking in line with it, and saying, well, then if that's true, I've got to do this, even though no one else is doing it. 
Matthew chapter 13, 31 through 32, Jesus explained in a parable the kind of impact that these individual choices and collective choices that followers of his would have over time. We read this, he told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch on its branches. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus refers to is not a place. It's a decision to place yourself under God's rule, to take instructions from heaven, not from earth. And that decision, of course, doesn't seem huge. It doesn't make the local news. It's, it looks like a mustard seed. This is a, a picture of what an ancient mustard seed looked like at this time in the world. It was the smallest seed in the ancient world. But depending on the conditions, that seed would grow into a tree that could reach 30 feet. Here's an example of what that seed can grow. What determines the size of any plant or tree? Not the size of the seed. It's the, the genetic code contained inside that seed that determines its size. The Bible is, is like God's genetic code for how to do what brings blessing in this world. And when one person or one church does that, it looks like a small seed. But as you look back through history, a lot of what is now a tremendous blessing to us is because a handful of people reading the Bible did something about it, and they planted that seed in the history of that region, and it spread. For example, the idea of education and literacy for the masses had never been thought of until Christians read and took seriously the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, 20. And that's where he commands us to go into all the world and share the good news of Jesus. And then he ends up by saying and teaching them to obey everything he commanded. And what occurred to people is that if, if we are going to teach people how to obey the words of the Bible, they're going to have to know how to read. This is what was behind most of the literacy efforts throughout the world. There are many, many languages that would not have been put into writing if it wasn't for Christian missionaries who decided to capture the language and turn it into an alphabet and turn it into a language that they can now read not just the Bible, but all of the other literature available that's translated. Education wasn't a Christian idea. Education for the masses was. That hadn't been thought of. It was only for the privileged, only for those who were wealthy, only for those who looked like they, they were in the royal line and would lead. If you were born as a common person, there was no way you would ever learn how to read. There was no way you would ever get an education until Christians began to change that. So public education was born out of this verse. Question number two, am I applying the Bible to daily life? In other words, am I planting its truth in the soil of my world? John chapter 12, verses 24 through 25, goes on to talk a little more about this seed of the good news. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat 
falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is talking about the personal price that it often takes to take what the Bible says and do it in our time and in our place. There's a price that comes with that, and it's much like a seed that needs to fall on the ground and die. That's what germination is. The seed ceases to exist, and it becomes a plant. There are two things you can do with a seed. You can eat it, or you can plant it. It's the same with the seed of the good news of Jesus. You can eat it and let it nourish your life. That's what happens when you accept the seed of God's truth through Jesus Christ, and it changes your life. We are called to do both. Be nourished by this good news, but not stop there. And this is the challenge. This is the application. If we are going to be good to this world, then we will need to die to something. The death is not a physical death usually, but a death to our own agendas, to our own kingdoms, to our own comfort. Great power is contained in a single seed. But if the seed doesn't die, the power of the seed is not released. It's just ideas. It's just genetic code. So the ideas of hospitals for everyone had never been thought of until Christians reading the story of the Good Samaritan realized that they were doing that. They were walking by the sick and doing nothing. And they needed to apply that story in their context. So followers of Jesus spent their lives, and some of them died, applying God's love to the sick. Question number three. Where is there an opportunity for me to live out my faith. In other words, what can I do in my time and place? As you look through history and you look back, it almost seems like, wow, that person was at the right time at the right place. And we think, well, that's not true of me. But it is. It may, it's a different time. It's a different place. The opportunities are different. But there are opportunities embedded in the present just like they were in the past. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we read this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. You didn't do this. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Don't think it's because you're amazing. It's because God was kind and gave you this gift. And then it goes on to say, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These are an amazing three verses. First of all, notice the order. First, we are saved. We are forgiven. We are made right with God. And then we do good works. Most people have this order switched in their minds. They think that they need to do enough good in order to finally earn God's favor, to finally be saved and forgiven. But that's not the order. Which comes first? In other words, the, the seed or the fruit? Now, you plant the seed, and then the plant grows, and then the fruit comes. The seed comes first. 
Trying to do enough good to earn God's approval is like trying to grow oranges by stapling them to a tree. Going to Ralph's, getting a bunch of oranges, staple gun, going to a tree and stapling it. That's not how oranges occur. It's once we receive this gift of salvation by God's kindness, His grace, and we say yes to that. That's when the seed of the good news is planted in our lives. And that's when, it says, God then begins to give you opportunities to do good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, just think about what this is saying. Prepared beforehand. That means as you're walking, God has gone ahead of you on the path of your life, and he has embedded opportunities But if you're head down, if you're all about you, all about your agenda, and not about what the Bible says and how can I apply it and what are the opportunities, you're going to walk right past a beforehand opportunity that God has placed in your path. I'll do the same thing. That's our natural tendency. But our world has been changed for good because enough followers of Jesus Christ looked for these opportunities. They took this verse seriously. And they never thought of themselves as world changers. They never thought of themselves as starting movements in education or health care or justice. They never thought of that. They were just people on a path who saw something that was out of line with Scripture, and God provided them an opportunity to do something about it. We now look back on history and realize it was a handful of people doing those kinds of things that changed the world for good. And God gives us opportunities. Some of them are just simply people that come across our path that we need to stop, pause long enough, just to talk to and take an interest in and see if we might be of help. Some of them are problems that we encounter, that we are uniquely positioned to be a part of a solution, to do something about them. Don't walk past these opportunities. You know, the horrors of the slave trade became illegal, not because good people finally came to their senses and demanded that it end, but not exclusively, but for the most part, it was because Christians in positions of influence and power decided to risk their reputations, their careers, their wealth, and even their lives to stand up and say, this is wrong. That's why it became illegal. Now, I've made some big claims this morning, and I'm going to go through this series and back this up. Several years ago, former Attorney General William Barr spoke at Notre Dame. This was on October 11th, 2019. He said something that is pretty interesting. He said, we hear much today about our humane values. We're just humane. We're, we're decent people. But in the final analysis, what, undergird, what undergirds these values? Where'd they come from? 
What commands us to do them, our adherence to them? What we call, quote-unquote, values today are really nothing more than mere sentimentality. It's what we feel emotional about right now. Still drawing, and here's the fascinating statement, still drawing on the vapor trails of Christianity. I think he's right. You know what a vapor trail is? You look up in the sky and you see you know, a large plane flying 30,000 feet, and it leaves behind it this vapor trail. The trail lets you know that a plane has passed. And what he's saying is that a lot of what we think is just common human decency is residue left over from the passing of the Christian movement in our nation. And the thing about vapor trails is they don't last long. Depending on the conditions, they go away. And you can see it. You can see the decline of what we now call basic decency. Why? My contention is that because the cause of Christ has been in decline for a few decades now. That is not something to look at and say, oh, that's sad. Or that's awful. Or that makes me mad. No. It's a call for us now on the stage of time to do what our brothers and sisters have done in far worse conditions. To look at what is in front of us and do the good and sacrifice our money, our time, maybe even our lives to be good news in this world. Let's pray. Jesus, we have more to thank you for than we know. Certainly our, our salvation that you paid for with your own life. But beyond that, the justice system we live in, the health care that we are provided, this the idea that we are supposed to treat each other with fairness and love, the very notion of charity that we should give money outside of our own budget. All of these things have brought so much blessing to this world and to our lives. As we go back to our homes this afternoon and sit down and eat our lunch and watch our football games and enjoy the rest of our week, remind us of how much we have to thank you for and call us up off of our couches to do what you want us to do. We certainly aren't powerful enough or rich enough to change this world. But our brothers and sisters before us weren't either. But you called them to act with the opportunities in front of them, and you brought change. So we ask that you would show us what to do, individually and as a church. Help us to see with gratitude as we look to the past in this series. And then turn our attention to now and look with great determination and courage to the future. We ask this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. 
For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.